So basically, you have a little square, and you're a little cube, and you try and take up other people's space. Can you die soon so I can, like, go after? How dare you? Parker and Lila are buddies. Parker, my name is Parker, is 11 years old, and Lila, I'm Lila, is 10 years old. Together, they like to play games on their tablets. Oh, I'm right next to the king, and the king's the person who has the most space. Wow. The game might be free to play, but these kids are paying for it by watching ads. Okay, my (laughs) turn, my turn, my turn, thank you, thank you. Oh, wait, no, I don't. Oh. And just by downloading the app, they risk sharing a lot of data about who they are. You know, at the beginning of every game, it's like, oh, yeah, I am... I agree with the terms of privacy policy. Privacy policies. Something most of us agree to without even reading. Parker and Lila haven't read the policy for this game, so we asked them to. Protection of your personal data is fundamental to us. With your prior consent, we are likely to collect and process the following data in whole... In the game, the players move a small cube around and try to grab valuable virtual territory before the other players do. And while they do that, the app is grabbing valuable personal data. Data that some people might consider private. Surname, forename, age, gender, email address, profile photos, hobbies, friend list. IDFA publicity... Indentifiers for iOS devices and GAID for Android devices. So that's kind of creepy. But I hope it's not to do anything bad. A lot of that stuff they do not need, and I don't really get why. I feel like maybe it's like some evil corp. Like, it, it probably isn't, but like some evil corporation, really, they just download a free game and it's just like, hey, this is like the best game in all the universe and it's free. And it was just like, hey, just click yes on our privacy policy and then you can play. And people are just like, yeah. And then they're just like evil hackers and they take over the world. It's probably not going to happen, but I mean, yeah, yeah, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, they, yeah. The game makers are not evil hackers who will take over the world. At least I don't think they are. But they did make a product. They offer it for free, and now they do what they can to make money from it. And so that means pushing ads, and that means pulling user data, and using that data to target us with more ads, or even just packaging up the information and selling it to other companies. Is it okay that all that personal information is being collected, or is it a massive invasion of your privacy? How you feel about these questions speaks to how we define privacy in the internet age. Do we care about it or don't we? Because by definition, privacy is an intimate thing, right? For some people, online, it means total anonymity. For others, they simply want more say in how their data is collected or used. And for others still, it doesn't mean much at all. And that's what makes it so hard to agree on when we say the phrase online privacy. What do we even mean? So as we launch the new season of IRL, let's take a look at this word, privacy, and learn how we can make sense of what it means to us online and offline. And we're going to start where it shows up the most, that annoying place, the privacy policy. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and welcome back to IRL, an original podcast from Firefox. 
Firefox has always taken your privacy seriously. Their lightning-fast browser, for instance, doesn't collect user data and automatically blocks ad trackers. All that and a privacy policy that's easy to read and puts you first. Find out more at firefox.com. Some of us think, and there have been surveys that show this, that when a site has a privacy policy, it means that the company behind the site is protecting the user's privacy. Well, that is actually rarely the case. A privacy policy is a legal document. It spells out how a company collects, stores, uses, and shares your data. That's part of the the issue. And the word policy as well is a real pain in the backside because people think of policies as documents which have to be boring uh, and have to be written in kind of corporate jargon legalese and have to be there to protect the organisation if it gets caught doing something wrong. Rowena Fielding calls herself a professional data protection nerd. She helps British companies craft their privacy policies. I should say, a lot of companies are trying to make their policies more readable and user-friendly. Google, Uber, Microsoft, Twitter, Facebook. But these are really long, chunky blocks of text. I mean, who is going to read all these? Rowena Fielding, that's who. I reckon I must have read hundreds, if not thousands, in my life so far. This is how I spend my free time. I'm really sad. No, you're not sad at all. It is thanks to brave heroes like Rowena that there is hope that privacy policies can be easy to understand and written more honestly. She can also help us navigate these policies and teach us how to spot red flags. There are many, but here are a handful to consider. I've got three that I see most often. So the first is saying, we may do such and such with your information. Uh, And that basically leaves the reader to play a guessing game. Are you doing this or are you not? If you're only sometimes doing it, what are the circumstances under which you would or would not do it? The second one is uh, having uh, basically a series of lists. So here is a list of data that we process, and then here is a list of purposes we process it for, and then here is a list of lawful bases we might rely on. Uh, And again, as a reader, if I'm looking at that, I kind of have to guess which ones apply to me and my data and which ones don't. Her third red flag has to do with the word purpose. Where... Uh, organizations say things like for marketing purposes or for HR purposes or even for legal purposes or my absolute favorite for record keeping purposes. I mean none of those are purposes, they're, they're activities they don't really tell me what's being done with my information and why and how. The actual purpose of the notice as in to, uh, to be transparent to inform the individual is completely lost. Rowena wants us to look out for weaselly, wishy-washy language in a privacy policy. She sees this as signs that the company behind it isn't being transparent about its data collection and use. In which case, you may want to reconsider your relationship with that company. But it's not really that simple, is it? I mean, I use lots of apps and services every day. I depend on them. I have not read their privacy policies, and I'm not going to stop using them. There was actually a study that, that showed that uh, just seeing a link to a privacy policy made people feel good, um, and they never looked at it. This is Lori Craner. She's a professor at Carnegie Mellon and directs the Scilab Security and Privacy Institute. 
I think before the internet, when people talked about having control over their own privacy, they were talking about really kind of physical manifestations. You know, you could close a door, put down the window shades, uh, choose not to fill out a paper form, um, or lower your voice. Lori brings up another important point about why, when we're online, we tend to leave the window shades rolled up. Let me give you an example. Okay, so you install a new app on your phone and then you open it and there's this pop-up and it asks you to agree to the app's terms and conditions and the app's privacy policy. You know what I'm talking about. We all do it. When users uh, click through, they haven't read or understand what they're consenting to. So no, it's, it's not really a meaningful or informed consent. So it's kind of like you're incentivized to ignore the information, right? The company wants you to click yes, and you want to use this new app as quickly as possible. So in a heartbeat, the deal between the two of you is done. You're rewarded for giving in without learning what you might be giving up. I think meaningful consent would explain to you what is being collected, why it's being collected, what it's going to be used for. So let's imagine how much more useful it could be. You open the app, and the first thing it does is tell you in simple, efficient language things like, when you use this app, we will know where you are, or we package your data and sell it to other companies, or when you leave this website, we will track where you go next and follow you across the web. And you're given a real choice. Do you consent or do you say no? Now, the problem is, is that given the amount of data collection that's happening these days, uh, you would spend an awful lot of time uh, looking at this information and having to make lots of decisions. Um, And so I think we need a balance between providing all of the information and making it really easy for people to provide or withhold consent without having to spend all their time doing it. That information exists, of course. It's in the privacy policy you just agreed to without reading. But I think Lori's right. It is harder to control our privacy because the internet subsists on data. We are drowning in it. It feels like it's everywhere, and yet it's intangible. It's so much easier to just try and move on with your day. You know, I think a lot of people hear the word privacy and their eyes glaze over. Charlie Warzel is a writer at large for the New York Times. But it's really just that we haven't been thinking about it the right way, I'm convinced. And we haven't really been conditioned to think of it as, you know, an everyday topic. Charlie has been trying to understand our complicated relationship with privacy, data, and online and offline life. He's part of the Times series called The Privacy Project. But you gotta wonder if privacy, that word, even covers it all. Is privacy a good word for this stuff? The short answer to that is no. It's an impoverished word. I think it's it's very similar to um, the term climate change, right? It's basically uh, something that is so big and all-encompassing that you can never really experience all of it at once, that trying to describe it, you're always going to sort of fall short of, of really conveying the actual uh, under like understanding. I mean, I think you just sort of laid out just how complicated this issue of privacy is and that it is at the intersection of so, so, so many various different topics. So I want to let's start with 
the companies themselves. Google's first privacy policy came out, I mean, two decades ago, 20 years ago. And when we look at what that original policy sort of covered, how do you feel like it compares to today's policies, what they are and maybe what they should be? Yeah. (laughs) Um, I mean, Google's privacy policy from, I think it was May 1999. So we're really actually at like the 20-year anniversary of that. Uh, it's, <laughs> Happy it's, anniversary know, to us, I know, right? <laughs> I know, it's absolutely crazy. Um, but, you know, it's so it's such a quaint artifact of a different time on the internet. Mm. Uh, it's it's very much like we might, you know, have some information on on you, but don't worry, we, we you know, hold your privacy in the highest regard. And, and really, you know, all you're doing is entering in some uh, some search terms, so it's not, it's not a big deal. And uh, to watch the evolution of that is really to watch the evolution of the modern commercial internet, right? Mm-hmm. Like the policy starts to get a little longer and a little more lawyered and a little less friendly and, you know, jovial and a little more concerned with the ways in which they are not liable for certain parts of your information. They start to talk about, yes, well, we, you know, we might share uh, certain bits of your information with third parties in order to improve an experience. Then it's, we might share certain bits of this information with third parties, you know, sort of as a, as a way to sell ads and help uh, promote our free services. At, At one point it goes from, we might be, you know, taking some of this location data to, we use all your location data. <laughs> uh, and so it really just shows how this idea of surveillance has become sort of omnipresent as the result of these wonderful, you know, uh, black mirror devices that we keep in our pockets all day. So you sort of see the evolution of the modern internet, how how it's not only become so dependent on an advertising machine, but how that advertising machine is really um based off of the most granular, real-time information about you. The way that I often think of privacy is this uh, concept of invasiveness. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, One of my listeners said that she was concerned that she had a drinking problem, and so she was Googling to, you know, figure out, did she have a drinking problem? Should she maybe visit an AA or, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous? And the next time that she went on Facebook, she started getting targeted with ads from local liquor stores. And ugh. it's just right. That's the only reaction there can be is like, ugh. That's when, like, mm-hmm. I think, you know, data, personal information and, and geo-targeting go horribly wrong. It really brings up um, that idea of, you know, a Google search term. Um, we actually had Google CEO Sundar Pichai uh, write an op-ed for the Privacy Project in which he sort of defends, you know, Google's uh, business model and the way that they do things. And one of his examples was that for tw- the last 20 years, Google has actually allowed people to ask questions, you know, of the service mm-hmm. that they would never do in real life. You, you know, you might not walk up to your doctor 30 years ago and say, I, I have a drinking problem. I'm worried. I, I want to find, mm-hmm. uh, you know, some help. And so, you know, his argument is that is actually, you know, a, a mode of privacy. And I actually think that that is a good point. 
but it's it's not a it's not like a f- a fully formed point in that it doesn't take into context the rest of the ecosystem right like mm-hmm. it doesn't take into account the entire advertising ecosystem that's built up around it the entire you know platform social networking industry that revolves on our data and the way that that stuff is passed and yes it's passed anonymously but like you you know like that example proves it can be easily connected to you and it can feel really invasive i think what you're saying is like you can't find religion on privacy on your own, dear tech companies. We've seen uh, Europe pass new laws. California next year will have a new privacy law. But are we at this point where there's a, a realization that this is a, it's beyond Google, it's beyond Facebook, it's beyond each company. It's a system now that needs oversight. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly it. I think it's a, it's it's a system, <laughs> uh, and I think that you know anyone who sort of believes that. Um, Well, first of all, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube on this stuff, right? Everyone has sort of woken up now to this idea that, you know, there are consequences to this, that the internet is real life, so to speak. Um, And you can't put those, you know, two decades since the first Google privacy policy, you can't put that back. That information has been passed around, has been sliced and diced and targeted and retargeted and put into a database which has probably gotten hacked and is spilled out into the internet in many different ways. Right, okay, so let's step away from privacy policies now and open this conversation up a bit wider. I want to hear more about how privacy and data can clash. Like, what are your favorite examples of how data has invaded someone's privacy in a strange or surprising way? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And an example of this that really caught my eye was a guy who is a computer programmer from Philadelphia. He installed a Nest thermostat in his home, Mm -hmm. and he tied it to this program called if this, then that, which basically is like an Internet of Things program that links different things. So his was uh, anytime my uh, Nest notices that I am, that goes into like away mode, which means the person is no longer in the house, turn off all the lights in my house, all the smart lights, uh, which is a, you know, a, a nice little thing. He, a couple of months ago, moved out of his home and he reset the thermostat, so he thought. Uh, the if this then that program though which he didn't really touch because he thought it was no longer going to work was still working and it was <laughs> pinging him every time that that the home was you know that people had left the house so he actually could see when the people who bought his house or his apartment from him were gone every time oh, and freaky. it was this real like invade like he didn't want it but it was this real invasion of privacy uh, another example is this sort of it speaks to the push and pull of um, of privacy and privacy legislation that I think is actually really interesting. A privacy advocate I spoke with was telling me about a 2014 law that Louisiana passed uh, a, over, you know, uh, student data privacy, which I believe, and I'm, I'm just kind of talking off the cuff here, but yeah. I believe it uh, it mentioned that if you had a student's name you couldn't have more than like one piece of identifiable data linked to them without the parent's permission. And that sounds just like something that's good, right? Like, you know, you, you don't want any of that publicly available. You want to protect these students. But the law was so stringent and so broad that it actually resulted in 
they couldn't publish student yearbooks because it had a photo and, and, <laughs> and a name. And they couldn't announce kids' names at football games when they scored a touchdown because oh, that was a piece funny. of identifying information with their name. They couldn't put the batting average of the shortstop on the, you know, the high school team in the program or something like that. So it's this kind of crazy situation. And that is sort of funny and quaint. But <laughs> the, the, the flip side of that is they also, for, for certain students, couldn't uh, release their GPAs and transcripts to scholarships. Wow. So I think what it highlights to me is this idea that our information is everywhere and it is incredibly important. It is part of our identities. It has such consequence in our life. And putting, you know, any kind of constraint on that is going to have all these ripple effects and unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. To me, we're at this very crucial moment where that things could go either way, like that the public could either decide, okay, we're not going to stand for this, or they just say, well... You know, like you said, can't put the toothpaste back into the tube. Mm -hmm. So here we go. And this is just the world we live in. And, oh, did you order dinner yet, by the way? You know what I mean? Uh, right. I, it's a great point. And I think that it's it's something I'm trying to really keep abreast of, right? I mean, the most staggering thing, uh, I was on a trip in Cambodia uh earlier this year and was speaking to people there about Facebook, just, mm. you know, sort of in passing, not for any reporting reasons and talking to them. And they mentioned the, the Cambridge Analytica scandal, <laughs> which I thought was really interesting. And they said, your data, this is like very striking to me. They said, your, your data is, is very valuable. Uh, you should be very mad that, you know, that it was, um, huh. that it was, it was taken, but I would be pleased if someone stole my data because then it would mean it was valuable. <gasps> I don't have any money. I don't have any clout in the world. I don't have any influence. I live in this country that has less influence. Um, my data is worth nothing. And it was this really striking sort of, uh, I mean, like obviously kind of heartbreaking uh, thing to hear, but I think it speaks to the, to the difference in attitudes, right? I, yeah. I, I think that... This intersects our lives in, in so many ways. You know, if you are a person of color of a certain, you know, demographic in a certain area of the country, um, you you may not know that you care about privacy, but you you certainly care about you know the ability to have you know police sort of constantly tracking you throughout a city or tracking your license plate wherever you go to make yes. it that much easier to have a traffic stop. You know, if you are an undocumented individual, you you absolutely care about the ability for uh, ICE to partner with companies that have large, you know, license plate databases that then partner with camera companies that then partner with law enforcement. Right? Uh, you you care greatly about that. That's Charlie Warzel, writer at large for the New York Times, and like Charlie says. Maybe privacy is an impoverished word to explain what we are wrestling with online. Maybe, as he also says, it's like climate change. It's just too big to wrap our heads around. Maybe we need to keep it simple, bring it back to basics. So here's one last thought to consider. It's from Jenny Afia. She's a privacy lawyer in England and a member of the Children's Commissioner's Digital Task Force. I've got two small children, uh, a five-year-old and a three-and-a-half-year-old. 
And watching her own kids grow up, Jenny sees how privacy is fundamentally part of personhood. When my daughter was really young, um, at 18 months, she uh, found some chocolate biscuits in a friend's handbag and went off down the corridor to eat them furtively by herself. And so there was, an, uh, there was some sort of innate desire for privacy. I think many parents um, don't take seriously enough children's rights of privacy. So, for example, they will just overshare photos of them. And I don't know how these kids will necessarily feel when they are 18 and there's photos of them in the bath still available on the internet. I mean, that goes to the heart of privacy for me. But it's, it's not necessarily that you're doing anything wrong at all or that you have anything to hide, but we all should have a sphere of our life where we're not on stage or being scrutinised and we're just able to develop and grow relationships and make mistakes and do stupid but not illegal things. And if we get rid of our privacy, it's going to have a massive impact on our ability to develop as, as humans. If the internet was a big shiny coin, you'd have privacy on one side and data on the other. Right now, our data is worth a lot of coin to a lot of companies. But privacy, it's priceless. It's a necessary part of a healthy, functioning society. And more of us need to have these conversations about what privacy is, what it means to us. Together, we decide what we're okay with giving up and what we're just not okay with. One way to get started is to look at some of those privacy policies that we've all been so good at ignoring. I mean, Parker's doing it. She's one of the kids we heard from earlier. I got a new computer for my 11th birthday recently, and I read the whole privacy policy. And it was really long, so I I feel better about it now, but... If privacy policies were presented more obviously and transparently... It would help consumers make more informed choices and maybe even hold companies accountable for their behavior. Likewise, if companies realize their customers actually read these things, it could compel them to review how they do business. Head to the show notes for this episode and find links to the policies we talked about. And if you want to see what a good privacy policy can look like, check out Firefox's while you're there. Go to IRLpodcast.org. Because an internet that respects privacy is an internet that is more human. And that is the theme that's going to carry us through this season of the podcast. We are asking big questions about the impact the internet is having on privacy, on democracy, on climate change, and of course, on our everyday lives. How can we ensure the internet puts people first? Let's explore that together. I'm Anoush Samarodi, and this is IRL, an original podcast from Firefox. And I'll talk to you again in a couple of weeks. Thanks so much for listening.